I want to say a special welcome to all of you this morning. Thanks for coming. This is obviously the crew that couldn't afford to go away for Columbus Day weekend, so we're really glad to have you here. If you're visiting with us, a special thanks to you for, uh, for coming as well. Um, we're going to spend the next several weeks, we're starting a new conversation today. We're going to spend the next several weeks talking about the good life. And at the very beginning, we need to acknowledge that a significant percentage of the world believes that we're living it. So what is it and how do you get it? And especially if we're living it, how do you secure it? You don't have to look far for advice on the topic of the good life. Countless sources have weighed in, everything from Mark Twain to Plato, from Forbes magazine to Cosmopolitan magazine. Obviously, the answers run the gamut. That's not surprising. But what may be surprising is that Jesus had some very definite opinions about the topic of the good life counter-cultural opinions in some cases, in some cases even counterintuitive opinions. Now, I believe that Jesus was the most influential thinker in the history of the world, and I know that uh, some of you agree if you just look at the sheer influence of his teaching. Based on that alone, I think his opinion would be worth hearing, right? But more importantly, subscribing to what Jesus thought about the good life has produced some of the finest human beings that ever lived. And following that, has, that advice has been immeasurably important in shaping many of us here this morning. So our conversation over the next several weeks, I hope it will be in, an invaluable reminder of that, you know, that influence and that shaping. Also a reminder of allowing us to be grateful for that influence and that shaping in our lives. And, and hopefully it will also help us re-engage our hearts and recommit. Today we're going to introduce this topic and speak mostly to our heads. As we get on in, in the next several weeks, we're going to be really practical. But today we're going to set the stage and speak to our heads. Look, for others of us, hearing about Jesus' perspective, for you it might be somewhat new. And it, it may even be intriguing I want you to know, I've prayed honestly that these conversations would launch you in a new direction or, or maybe boost the directional change that's already happening in your life. Either way, I promise you it's worth considering. Because what the good life, don't miss this, what the good life is and how we get at it is a really critical, important discussion for all of us. I mean, our beliefs about that question drive our decisions, what we buy where we do what we do and what we do, what we tell our children. These things really are driven by what we think the good life is. So let's spend some time with the most important thinker of all time as he answers the question, what's the good life and how do we get at it? Now our source material for these conversations is going to be the longest sermon recorded of Jesus. It's by far. It's found in Matthew's biography chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you should know that this sermon, Jesus' sermon, it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount because he, he preached it evidently on the side of a hill. By the way, months ago, Diane and I were able to go to the country of Israel. And thank you guys, Gateway gave that to us as a gift. And we were able to see the place where they believe that Jesus preached the, the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has received unprecedented praise over the centuries. It has many times been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher who ever lived. I have to tell you, before we came here to Northern Virginia, Diane and I lived in the Boston area, and I pastored a church up there. We had a, an Hispanic congregation that was part of our congregation up there, 
And once in a while, the pastor of the Spanish church would ask me to come in to be in their service, say something to their service so they could laugh at my Spanish or whatever. So I went one Sunday, and I thought this was incredibly gutsy. He stands up. And I, didn't, I wasn't saying anything. I was in the back, barely understanding. But he, he stands up and he says, I'm going to preach the greatest sermon ever preached today. Let's pray. And while he's praying, I was thinking, wow, that is either completely idiotic or very, very brave. Jesus' name, amen, and he starts quoting the Sermon on the Mount. And he quoted three entire chapters. It's very impressive. I'm not going to do that today. But this sermon has also been reviled. Over the centuries, people have thrown serious shade at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For example, Ayn Rand, the author of Atlas Shrugged, she regarded this teaching as among, quote, the vilest ever uttered. And the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche hated the sermon because he believed it encouraged human weakness. We're going to see that Nietzsche kind of has a point. So we'll start today's conversation with the opening of that sermon, and it's a doozy. Just the opening of the Sermon on the Mount is so power-packed and well-known. It's gotten its own shorthand name. It's called the Beatitudes. The first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, and through these Beatitudes, we'll be introduced to what I'm going to call right-side-up living. So we're going to talk today about right-side-up living. And this, again, speaking to our heads, we're going to get an introduction to the good life. Now, we're going to read Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. We'll do it a little differently today. I'd love for you to look along if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, if you go to your browser, mygateway.life, click on the sermon card, you can find the passage. But today, I want you to read with me, the first time we go through it, from the screen. I'm going to read the light print. You're going to participate with me. You're going to read the dark print. I'll tell you why in a second. But we're going to read the opening, just the opening to this great sermon Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. So I'll read the light print, you read the dark. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is Jesus in front of a large crowd. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, one of the reasons I wanted us to do this is to get your participation, wake you up, but also because we tend to think of the first part of these Beatitudes, the, the first phrase, as the key phrase. And I think for Jesus, the second phrase was the key phrase. Let me give you another hint to that. We sometimes read these as aspirational, meaning I need to be meek. I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as if Jesus is setting up another kind of standard for how you get to God. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. These are not aspirational. They are inspirational, but they are not aspirational. The focus is on what you get because you're this kind of person. We'll get to that in a minute. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. We have to pause before receiving this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He's not done. He wants to 
really hammer on that last point. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And Father, we come to this with an open mind as best we're able, with an open mind and an open heart. And you know us, you know why we're here, you know the burden either of our health or some news we've heard this week or our to-do list, you know the joys that we're experiencing. Some of us are all in, leaning into you this morning, and some of us barely know. And you're here for each of us at that place. So we bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you right now. We ask that you would break open our chests and massage your truth in our heart and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if we really got what Jesus was saying here, our response would be something like, what What in the world are you talking about? How can this be? What is going on? Because if Jesus is right, then we've pretty much got it really wrong. A few years ago, a Navy pilot was practicing, this is not an unusual thing, it's not an unheard of thing, by the way, a Navy pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a high-performance Navy jet, and she turned the controls for what she thought would be a steep ascent, and she flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a cautionary tale for our lives. We may be making changes in our lives or executing decisions about career, about kids, about future, about finances, whatever, and we may be meticulously following conventional wisdom only to find that the result is devastating to our lives and to our relationships because we're not rightly oriented. If Jesus is right, then conventional wisdom may have us flying upside down and however fast or effectively we're flying, we are in deep trouble and we don't know it. We must right side up our lives before we try to execute even the smallest maneuver. So if you're keeping score at home, here's what Jesus is saying, and I want to give it to you in a nutshell. This is the don't miss this principle. If you're in a place in life where you're weak or vulnerable, you're in a great spot because the kingdom of God is available to you. Let's say that again, and we'll unpack this the rest of this morning. If you're in a place where you're weak or vulnerable, you're in a great spot because the kingdom of God is available to you. Let me give you the corollary. Here's the corollary. The kingdom of God, which I'll explain in a minute, the kingdom of God is the answer to our greatest and deepest needs. It is our ultimate satisfaction, and we should receive it joyfully and pursue it with all our might. So the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, in Matthew's gospel, phrases are used interchangeably, is at your right elbow. It's right here because I'm here. I'm speaking for Jesus. If you're a spiritual nothing, if you've got nothing to offer, you're not sure of anything, you're feeling lost, the kingdom of God is yours for the receiving. If life has thrown you too many disappointments, your career is less than inspiring, your marriage is lost, your health has taken a dramatic turn, your downturn, your finances, your significant relationships, your dreams are in the tank, the death of a loved one. If your heart is broken, you're in mourning, comfort is here and yours for the asking. If you're meek and pure in heart, you're in a great spot. Okay, wait, pause over those. These are not characteristics that are applauded, not now and not ever. 
The meek and pure in heart don't become rich and famous. They don't get promoted to CEO. They don't get elected. The meek and pure in heart are overlooked. They get discarded. They sometimes wish they were stronger and and more worldly wise and smarter and assertive themselves. They get taken advantage of, not admired. Now, many of us have been around the teaching of Jesus long enough that we think a little differently about that. We we tend to value meekness and purity of heart, but, but even for us, not always. And certainly the world around us never sees meekness and purity of heart as right-side-up living. There are no business seminars on uh, increasing your meekness. I want you to please forgive this language. I'm glad we don't have children in here today. I wouldn't use this. But I want you to try sometime Googling the phrase, learning how to say F you. You get loads of hits. There are... Article after article extolling the benefits of that. Do you know there are FU shirts and mugs available on Amazon? There's even a best-selling book with a similar title, and I want you to hear the subtitle. The subtitle to the book is, quote, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living the Good Life. It extols the benefits of being, shall we say, crustier and not caring As best I can tell, it is an instruction manual in upside-down living. And did I say it was a bestseller? Blessed are the merciful. When your heart breaks for others, you're in a good spot. Blessed are the peacemakers. When you find yourself in the middle of a conflict, and it feels awful, by the way, you're burdened and don't fully know how you got in this place, or you're a cop called to the scene of domestic violence, you're wondering why in the world you do this for a living. Rejoice! You're in a great spot. The kingdom's at your elbow. So, when Jesus uses the phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, what he means, he he didn't invent this, but he certainly expanded it. He means that God is the director of your life. You have said, I'm in with you. You now are the governor, not me. I submit it all to you. It means connectedness to God. It means in sync with God. It's also similar to what he means by the phrase, righteousness with God or of God. It means to be rightly connected to him. So the kingdom of God is God's rule. In fact, that happens perfectly and fully outside of, this is what Christians have always believed, it's a weird thing, but it means it it happens absolutely and fully outside of time, outside of the constriction in which we now live. So once again, don't miss this principle. If you're in a place where you're weak or vulnerable, you're in a great spot because the kingdom of God is available to you. Next slide. The kingdom of God is the answer to our greatest and deepest needs. And we should receive it joyfully and pursue it with all our might. This is the key to right-side-up living, according to Jesus. If the kingdom of God is the answer to our deepest and greatest needs, pause, then anything that allows for greater access to it is to our benefit. I'm going to say that again. If the kingdom of God is the answer to our deepest and greatest needs, then anything that allows access or creates or encourages access to it is to our benefit, even those things that are most difficult in our lives. If they encourage us, if they entice us, if they increase our access to God and to his governorship over our lives, then they're to our benefit. They're a good thing. It's helpful for us to remember the context of this sermon the great sermon that Jesus preached. And we find this out in the paragraph right before Matthew chapter 5. Jesus had spent several months launching his ministry by traveling from village to village in Galilee. 
And he'd become something of a local phenomenon because he'd actually healed people. And crowds had begun to gather to hear him whenever they got the chance. So almost wherever he went, people would hear that Rabbi Jesus was coming and a a crowd of people would collect. The important thing to remember about that whole scenario is Galilee. So let's get an idea of what Galilee would have represented to ancient Near Eastern Israel. We'll bring that into our modern context. To, to imagine Galilee, I want you to imagine a large Indian reservation in Oklahoma, but not one of the ones with a casino. Or I want you to imagine the poorest six-block area in southeast D.C. Or imagine one of those countries referred to as human waste by our president. The people in those areas are not known for their sophistication. They're not on the upside of life. They feel clueless. They're brokenhearted. They don't have hope. They don't have advantages. They're sometimes even persecuted. And Jesus tells that crowd, you're in a great spot, really. Much of what is driving your desperation, much of what you think you want, will not serve you in the long run. If you end up having what conventional thinking tells you that you're missing, your future self will not be any happier or more fulfilled. In other words, much of your thinking is upside down, but you right now are close to the kingdom of God, and that really is all that you need. All right, let's back up from Jesus' teaching for a minute, and I want you to look at some interesting research. I was was talking to my brother-in-law about this yesterday, and I decided to talk about this today. There's been an explosion of research. Some of you may know this. There's been an explosion of research in happiness over the last 20 years. Academic research by research organizations and by academia, by universities all over the country. One of the guys who's on the forefront of this is a psychology professor at the University of Harvard, and he has constructed a a number of different long-term studies on happiness and individual case studies on happiness, and he's constructed weird, kind of cool clinical studies where he sets up these weird situations and and studies people's responses to them and learns some things about happiness from it. He's written a book called Stumbling on Happiness, which is an interesting read. He's decidedly not a believer, but it's still an interesting read. And some of what he does affirms what we're talking about today, interestingly. He also has a TED Talk called The Surprising Science of Happiness. Spoiler alert, I'm going to give you some of his TED Talk today and also flesh it out with some research from a couple of articles that I've read of his. So here's Gilbert's main thesis that he's arrived at in all of his research on happiness. Gilbert says, we're not very good at predicting what will satisfy our future selves. We're not very good at predicting what will make our future selves happy. In other words, we're constantly making decisions that our future self looks back on and thinks, I wish you hadn't done that. Or that really didn't turn out like I thought it would. I need to give you some of his research. This is really fascinating. Again, as I said, he's demonstrated this over and over again in clinical studies that he sets up in in a classroom setting, for instance, or in a laboratory. But they've also done real-life studies, and I want to give you just one of those. So this is data gathered by uh, reams of interviews with lottery winners and paraplegics. So they interview uh, people who become lottery winners and paraplegics, and then they interview them again. I think it's a year later. It might be three months later. Don't quote me on that. And this is not a genius test. I want you to guess what percentage of people 
would rather win the lottery versus become a paraplegic. So we're going to show that percentage now. You probably are part of the 100% that would prefer to win the lottery versus becoming a paraplegic. However, when this population is asked a year later, relative happiness, next slide, Jonathan, this is what we get, 50% happier, 50% unhappy, 50-50. You know, those are worse odds than I would have thought. I'm constantly wishing, we don't ever play, but I'm constantly, when, they, when one of these big lottery comes along, I think to myself, we would use that money really well, God. You should deposit that money with the Allens. I mean, I'll, Gateway would benefit. Our friends and family would benefit. Diane and I might buy a few houses, but other than that, we would give a lot of it away. Now I want you to see the paraplegic crowd. People that became a paraplegic, they're interviewed a year later, and this is what we find. The same. In fact, happiness levels are a little higher, not statistically significant, so roughly the same. This is what we're clueless about. He says this in a, an, another article later, not in his TED Talk. They do follow-ups. How many people are surprised by these results? 100%. I bet you're in that as well. Again, research in, indicates that we're not good at predicting what will make our future selves happy. Gilbert suggests that the main reason for this is what he calls impact bias. Impact bias is, and I'm going to quote him here, the tendency to overestimate the hedonic impact of future events. Hedonic meaning pleasure-causing. We tend to overestimate how much something will cause us pleasure in the future. And our future self realizes, no, you were wrong about that. That really didn't make that much difference. Financial change, the elections, romance, dramatic sports win, promotion, weight loss, a move to California. We believe the differences in outcome between these things are more different than they are. Again, we believe the differences in outcomes are more different than they actually turn out to be. These different outcomes have less impact, they're less intense, and they last less long than we imagine. We're not good at predicting the happiness of our future self. He also, in his TED Talk, i got to give you this, he gives four illustrations, this is really funny, that kind of demonstrate this principle. So let's put an exclamation point on this. I'm going to just give you four testimonies that prove this point. The first one is Jim Wright. Jim Wright said, I'm much better off physically, financially, mentally, and in almost every other way. And Gilbert, at the end of that, says, what other way could there be? Vegetably, minerally? He's better off in every way. Jim Wright, some of you will know, was the Speaker of the House, congressman from Texas, and when Newt Gingrich, some of you are old enough to remember this, when Newt Gingrich came in with the revolution and they swept out corruption, part of the corruption that they swept out was Jim Wright. They discovered that he had been unethical. He lost his place in Congress. He lost his seat. He lost his power. He lost his prestige, and he lost most of his money. And years later, he's interviewed, and he said, I'm much better off. Physically, financially, mentally, and in almost every other way. The next person is Morish Bickham. And Morish was, you won't know him, but he was on death row for, I think, 49 years. He got out of prison when he was 79 because DNA evidence overturned his conviction. He spent most of his life in prison. And he said, I don't have one minute's regret. It was a glorious experience. Glorious! 
As Dan Gilbert says, he doesn't say, you know, they had a nice gym and we got to go outside. Glorious! It was a glorious experience. The next person is Harry Langerman. You won't recognize Harry Langerman. He is almost the, one of the most famous people in American history. He says, I believe it turned out for the best. In 1949, Harry Langerman read an article about a couple of brothers whose last name was McDonald who were selling hamburgers in Southern California and they were looking for some people to come alongside them. He read it. He went to meet them. Yes, please join us. He goes back and talks to his brother, who is a wealthy financier in New York City. Help me go in on this. It's just $3,000. His brother uh, says in very famous and conventionally wise words, you're an idiot. People don't eat hamburgers. Nine months later, a man named Ray Kroc saw the same thing, decided he would go in, and he became the wealthiest man in America in 20 years. Evidently, Harry's brother was wrong. Harry's response to that is, I believe it turned out for the best. Last example is this guy. Some of you will recognize him, Pete Best. I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. He was the first drummer for the Beatles. And in one of their early gigs, Pete couldn't come, and they ran into a little guy named Ringo Starr, and they took him on, and Pete Best was cast to the side. He's still drumming. He's a studio drummer today. I'm happier than I would have been with the Beatles. And at the end of that, Gilbert says, so we finally have the answer. Based on this research, we now know the secret of happiness, and here it is. Number one, accrue wealth, power, and prestige, then lose it. Number two, spend as much of your life in prison as you possibly can. Number three, make somebody else really, really rich. And number four, never, ever join the Beatles. But his immediate point is that we're pretty good at knowing how to make ourselves happy regardless of outcomes. Now, that's probably true, but whether or not that's true, those testimonies further reinforce Gilbert's main thesis. We're just not good at predicting what will make our future selves happy. So, what we need is a man from the future who can tell us what really constitutes the good life. Remember, the kingdom of God rule of God. The kingdom of God is fully and finally and completely realized outside of time and what the guys in the Bible who followed Jesus called eternity or the coming age. They didn't have an even better way to talk about it. And it's as if, it's as if Jesus has parachuted in from that world into the planet and talked to us and showed us how to live and then we killed him and then he resurrected from the dead. So powerfully so that there was, a, there was a famous theologian in the middle of the 20th century wrote a book about the kingdom of God, and he used this beautiful phrase that's been quoted a million times. He said, Jesus, in Jesus, there is the presence of the future. In Jesus, we have a man from the future warning us that our culture is giving us instructions about how to fly upside down. Worse still, we're flying inverted, believing that we're right side up. So anytime we make any kind of maneuver, we're in danger. Look, Jesus gives us the main impulse for his whole sermon later in chapter 6. And we'll get to that in, in the coming weeks. It's the main impulse for his whole ministry. He says this. This is big. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given you as well. And when he says these things, he's referring to all of our everyday concerns. This idea is the driver for everything else that Jesus teaches. So now, 
Back to the Beatitudes. Jesus introduces his epic sermon by shocking us with the radical right-side-up idea that when we're needy and vulnerable, not, oh no, no, we're in a good place. In fact, if we've got it all together, if everything in our life is going up and to the right, then we may be in trouble because we need the kingdom of God. And those of us who are meek and poor in spirit and persecuted are very close to it. Look back at our main point again. If you're in a place where you're weak or vulnerable, you're in a great spot because the kingdom of God is available to you. And the corollary, the kingdom of God is the answer to our greatest and deepest need. And we should receive it joyfully and pursue it with all of our might. Okay, two takeaways for us today. Number one takeaway is that head work that I was talking about. I'm convinced that you and I need to acknowledge the right-side-up nature of God's perspective, and try to maintain it ourselves. We're swimming against the stream of our culture, so what you and I have to do is is acknowledge and then work to maintain the right-side-up perspective that Jesus brings. Diane and I have a neighbor and a really good friend who's part of Gateway. Some of you know him, Jan. And early in Jan's spiritual journey a number of years ago, Jan had the opportunity to meet Ina York, and Ina is a woman that we support here at Gateway. She's one of the missionaries that we invest in. She's doing amazing work in a village in the Dominican Republic, and I I want you to hear more about Ina in the future. Ina was visiting us one time, and she had an interaction with Jan, and Jan was telling her just about this, what's going on in his life, and just topsy-turvy and trauma and uh, stuff happening, and, you know, I think he's winding up to ask Ina to pray for him, but no, this and that, and this and that. And Ina's response to him was, God must really love you. What? God must really, wait, have you not heard? Because I need to figure out what to do here. I've got, I mean, I'm, I may need to do this or rearrange this, or God must really love you. Because you're, when you're in a spot, when you're weak and vulnerable, you're in a really good spot. You're close to the kingdom of God. You think of God's perspective. I'm reminded of that children's book. I couldn't remember it in the 9 o'clock service, and I can't remember it now. Nobody told me. But it's Alexander and the day or something. But, you know, it's the good day, bad day, right? You've, some of you have read it to your kids. And if you haven't, this, this beautiful book has probably won some awards. I don't know. So you, you go to one page, and it, it gives you the, the calamity that Alexander finds himself in. And the bottom of the page, it says, oh, that's bad. And he turned the page and says, no, that's good. Because it leads to this great thing that happens in the end of that day, at the bottom of the day, says, oh, that's good. And then he turned the page and says, no, that's bad. Because it leads to the next calamity. This is God's perspective. So those of you this morning who came in burdened because of your marriage or burdened because of your finances or burdened because you talked to a doctor this week and you heard some really bad news, you're in a great spot. Because the kingdom of God is at your elbow. It's there for the asking. You know, in the past, I thought about this time when I was thinking about today. I've called that the upside-down perspective. Jesus is upside-down perspective. You know, Jesus said the way to lead is to serve. The way to live is to die. It's not upside-down. It's right-side-up. And we're at risk when we don't maintain that perspective. Because if you're flying inverted and you need to make some serious maneuver right into the ground. 
And then you and I are left thinking, what happened? Look, if conventional wisdom were right about the good life, one more piece of evidence. If conventional wisdom was right about the good life, then young Hollywood would be the happiest people who ever lived. They're gorgeous. They got loads of money. People applaud them wherever they go. And they're miserable. So, second takeaway is an act of the will. First one is just head. Let's just think about that. Set ourselves up for the next several weeks. Second is an act of the will. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. So if you came to church today, it's a little arrogant, but I think you made a really good decision. Because anything that you do that moves you toward connection with God is a good choice. And it must take top priority. It must. Every day, every week, for your life. That's right side up living. And anything that makes your heart soft toward God, anything that makes your heart soft toward God is great for you. No matter how difficult it may feel at the moment. We had an elder meeting yesterday, and I'm honored to serve here with a group of men that look over and think about and, and worry about and pray for our needs and our concerns, and we do. And we have spent time in prayer for many of you. And we have spent time in prayer for some of you. We have spent time in prayer over some of you and seen nothing happen. So we had these, one of these conversations. I think, I, I don't remember, Rob, I think it was when you said, what are we struggling with or something like that. And two or three of us around the table we're basically, because this is a group of awesome, incredibly godly men, we're saying, I don't believe anything. Because why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he move? Not always. Not constantly looking for a home run, but why doesn't God move more? I mean, we have prayed, just like it says in the book, and nothing happened. And then we got to John Malella, and John went last, and John is a whiner, so he was whining about that more than any of us. And at the end of it, we said, let's pray. And we started to pray, and as we're praying, I was reminded of today. And I thought, we're in a good spot. Because we're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And i got to be honest, then I thought, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Stupid. And then I thought, it doesn't make sense because I'm so often flying upside down. Let's pray. Lord, I mean, this is a really hard perspective to hang on to. It is, I mean, it runs against our instincts to the extreme. And yet, many of us today have said, we believe in the man from the future. And so, we want to lay hold of it today. Even if only just as a concept. We want to lay hold of it, and we want to acknowledge it. And we want to ask you to help us marinate in it. And then, Lord, I offer up our hearts as well, as we make the decision tomorrow morning to seek you first. 
And then Thursday, to seek you first. And then make that the preeminent priority in our life, the governing principle of our life. We barely know what that means. We need your help. Train us. Over the next several weeks, speak to us really specifically about how and what, and what not, by the way. What this doesn't mean. We love you, and we're in. And we say again, for those of us this morning who are, who are saying we're in, by next Friday, when we've forgotten or we're wanting to be out, Lord, you remind us. No, you, you said you were in, and I took you seriously. Hear us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, go in peace. Have a great week. Thanks for coming. Thank you.